Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. And I'm Lauren Good, Senior Technology Editor at The Verge. And you're listening to Too Embarrassed to Ask, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a show where we answer all of your embarrassing questions about consumer tech. It could be anything, like whether Kara really is like this all the time, or if this is just an act. I am really like this all the time. Or whether Face ID on the new iPhone is going to work when you have your sunglasses on. They are, as Steve Dowling has assured me. Okay, well, send us your questions. Find us on Twitter or tweet them to at Recode or to myself or Lauren or with the hashtag TooEmbarrassed. We also have an email address. It's TooEmbarrassed at Recode.net. And a friendly reminder, Kara's password is 1234TooEmbarrassed. It has two R's and two S's, Thank so you for we're revealing sure my secret break password. into her account. You so. can also find your Equifax credit score there too. <laughs> oh wait, pages <laughs> that for everybody. <laughs> so we've been on a real health kick. Health I'm too kick. embarrassed to ask lately. We've talked about replacing red meat with engineered meat. Mm-hmm. We've talked about drugs that supposedly can make you smarter. Yep. And we've yep. talked about the doctor's office of the future, <gasps> even though it's only currently available to wealthy people in San right. Francisco. Exactly. Today we're, we're talking we're about. <laughs> They walk up hills. Yeah. Today we're talking about DNA. DNA. Yes. Yes. So we're delighted to have someone who's been on Rico Decode already, Ann Wojcicki. She's the CEO of 23andMe. And we have a lot of new stuff to talk about since then, including a giant funding. And welcome to Too Embarrassed to Ask. Thank you. So get us up to speed on how 23andMe is doing. It's been around. How long has it been around? Eleven and a half years now. Right, and we had you. We had you on stage at All Things D when you you did my that was DNA to Rupert Murdoch. We it was like a two thousand nine <laughs> yeah. launch of our research. Yeah, right. yeah. No, he's I not my we, father apparently. He's All a, right, so eleven years. So for that, how many how many kits have you sold? How big is your database? Give us some like statistics of what's been going so on. So we've said it's it's over two million. Mm-hmm. Um, we have you know over you know half a billion data points on all of our customers now where they self-report data about themselves so tons of information and and i think that there's you know real critical mass of people who want to do 23me and learn about their genetics and that people are really motivated and interested in doing participating in research Mm -hmm. and money raised you just we've raised about yeah we just raised 250 million that's a lot of money yeah and yeah, you raised about two hundred million prior to that. We raised about two hundred million prior to that. And who were the new investors? Uh, it was led by Sequoia. Mm-hmm. Fidelity participated. Um, a new one, Euclidean, also mm-hmm. joined in. Um, the Wallenberg family or the Wallenberg Foundation from Sweden, who I used to work mm-hmm. for, and Altimeter. Altimeter. So, mm-hmm. what are you going to do with all this cash now? So we've raised. It's a great yeah. question. Yes. I'd like um, to know. You know, I think that we we didn't need the money right now. And so it's in some ways it was a great time. But I, I see, like, the thing that excites me is that I see the potential. Like, people really want their DNA. Mm-hmm. And, and I also see the engagement of our customers is phenomenal. So, you know, customers, at least, you know, over 40% of customers are coming back on a quarterly basis. So we have spectacular numbers of people who are coming back, mm-hmm. which to me just begs that they want to do more. And so I think for me, this is an opportunity. Like I really, the mission of 23andMe is not just about genetics and not just about like we have research and again, all of that, which is already a big mission, mission but I really want to transform healthcare. And I think that there's a huge opportunity for the consumer to have a voice. And if people people want to engage, people want to learn about themselves. They want to be they want to be healthier. They want to know more what they can do. And so I feel like I now have this responsibility to tell you. You know, I told you you're high risk for Alzheimer's. You're high risk for Parkinson's. You're high risk for a stroke. Like I told you, really meaningful information about yourself. Now I need to help you execute on your life. Right. And so I think that's where, when I think about the potential of you know raising this capital, it's about we want to expand. And I think that there's a real opportunity to think about an affordable 
consumer-centric healthcare system. In earlier interviews, you've talked mm-hmm. about the challenges in just getting people to accept this idea, right? Of yeah. Sending in a saliva sample and having their DNA information live in a database somewhere. You've compared it to the early days of Amazon when yeah. people weren't necessarily comfortable shopping online, and now it's this huge thing. Mm-hmm. Do you still see that as a challenge? And, and what do you have to do to get to that point it's, where it's, it's Amazon-like, where everyone just does it? I think it's still a challenge, but I see it breaking. And I think that's, to me, the exciting point of right now is I think that when you start to see the types of numbers and the types of volume that we're getting, you see that there's there's an opportunity for broad acceptance. And why and is that? I think, you know, we're, we're 11 and a half years old. In part, there's a question of time. And I think that there's enough stories out there. Like every, you know, I was just down, I was sitting in the lobby and someone walked up to me. It was like, you know, you changed my life with, you know, one of the old healthcare reports that we used to have. And she's like, I tell everyone about it now and how much it had an impact on me. And I think that you get enough people around this country. And who, here at the office, Sally Kutcher, I was looking at it and talking exactly. about 23 and I was getting a, a soda and it was... I was like, oh, the founders. Yeah. So it, was it, it comes up all the time how mm-hmm. much it is truly impacting people's lives, either from an ancestry component or from a health component. So I, I think that there's some element of just there's critical mass. People do understand the concept now a lot. I mean, you you were yeah. one of the first to introduce it on a popular, on a commercial, Correct. on a consumer basis, really. So, you, But you did have a, a lot of stumbles. So last time we spoke, you, were, you had been just finishing wrangling with the FDA over what you could reveal and what you couldn't and how they classify medical devices. Talk, give us an update of where that is, because you'd stumbled and hadn't mm-hmm. done the proper paperwork you needed to do. We did. I mean, we, we were classified as a medical device, and we, mm-hmm. th- we thought we were a laboratory-developed test. So mm-hmm. we have been going through the process with the FDA. We have now two FDA clearances. The first one was for carrier status, mm-hmm. and the second one was for genetic health risks. So we don't have everything back yet, but mm-hmm. we have at least a path where I know that we'll be able to get more of those reports back that we want. So how do so, you interact with the FDA? Just frequently. Can, frequently. What, what, is their, <laughs> what is their attitude now? Because I mean, I know we had talked about them being slow, a lot of people. A lot of people I talked to, Vic and Dotra, there's this slowness of, of the change in regulatory. Well, I've always said like the FDA speaks data. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes it can take a while to generate data. So it's, you know, you have to prove, like you have to prove it's safe, you have to prove it's accurate. And, you know, one of the big leaps for us is we have an FDA clearance that does not require a physician or genetic counselor. So there's, you know, we all recognize this in healthcare that there is this assumption that you need supervision on your behaviors and your actions. And so we feel it's really important to make things direct to consumer because it just makes it cheaper and more affordable and accessible. Mm -hmm. So we had to prove to the FDA that people can get this information without the, you know, oversight of a physician or genetic counselor. And that actually took a lot. That's like all about the product and showing that it's, you know, it's it's anyone of, you know, any education level can understand Mm -hmm. it and that they can grasp the key concepts and they can, you know, you get an Alzheimer's report or a Parkinson's report that you know what to do with that information. But when you said that you haven't gotten it all back yet, what does that mean exactly? Someone sends in their sample and what what can you do and what can't you do? So we don't do all the interpretation back yet that we used to do. So we used to do also cancer testing as well as drug response. So we don't, those are two categories as well as a bunch of preliminary research. So there's a bunch of report categories that we don't have yet. So we have to get approvals with the FDA on those. And is that something you're working towards? It's like something, I I call them all my children. Like, yes, I want all my children back. What kind of timeline are you looking at for that to happen? How does that work? We, that's one thing with the FDA, you can't ever really necessarily yeah. predict, but yeah. we're working on it. Has that changed with this, you know, this idea of consumers taking control? Has that changed as the new administration has come in and attempted to dismantle ACA? And has it impacted your business? 
It hasn't impacted. I mean, I'd say things are moving. The the thing at the FDA is a lot of the people who are we the interact with, it's the same people. So there hasn't been, you know, I think that there's sort of, you know, people see that there's this environment that's not, you know, Trump's not coming out and trying to put new regulations out there. But I'm dealing with the same, you know, you know we work with the same people that we have always worked with. Mm-hmm. So there's a process. So and the can, head of the FDA doesn't matter necessarily. Uh, well, I mean, we we know Scott Gottlieb. He was out here. He's a right. you know we're we're big fans of what he's done because I think he represents. He knows enough about Silicon Valley to understand some of the innovation and the potential. But he also has real. He understands and respects drug development and safety and the needs. You know, the reality is the FDA is there to help keep us actually, you know, you make sure that we're yeah. using products that are safe. Right. And so I have a lot of respect for what they do. And I also see there are a lot of bad actors out there. Mm-hmm. And I see that even in my space of like, you know, there's a lot of genetic information that is, you know, not great, mm-hmm. you know, not mm-hmm. well validated. So I see the the need for them. Um, so I think that he'll have a good balance. And I think that's why I was actually happy when I saw he was appointed, because I think he's balanced. One of the things that we've talked about a lot lately on the show, and I mentioned this earlier, is is sort of the consumer taking more control of their own healthcare. We've mm-hmm. talked about mm-hmm. nootropics. We've talked about fasting. We've talked about consumer wearables. I, I'm Kara calls them unwearables. I like to test wearables, <laughs> so we differ on that topic. Um, we've talked about these fancy additive health clinics, mm-hmm. and a lot of this is centered. It seems in Silicon Valley and some other metropolitan areas as well. Right. What do you think about Silicon Valley's kind of obsession with this idea of um, I don't know controlling their own destinies in some way when it comes and where to health too. and possibly trying to stave off death? Yeah. Yes, I mean I, I've read the articles. Like, there's definitely this movement of like, well, we must solve death. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we are, you know, we're very much focused on the mainstream of like I your think companies yeah 23 me i think in terms of like i think there's a huge i mean i think the, the reality is that death is just the reality for us so some of <laughs> i'm sure some of my peers will be unhappy with that statement mm-hmm. um but it seems relatively real mm-hmm. um but for me the beauty of like what is so interesting out there is like everyone can agree there's genes and environment mm-hmm. and so your genes dictate a certain element but you have this huge variability in your environment and so for me, it's like, yes, people, like, if we can understand what variables are really important, then you can potentially live the most optimal life. Like, if you know you're high risk, likely to be a type 1 diabetic, are there things in your environment that you can potentially alter to, to not then develop it? I mean, a lot of these things are potentially preventable if you actually know what you can change. And so for me, one of the big elements of 23andMe is doing that kind of prevention research is that if I get tons of people together and I can actually collect, like wearables are really interesting to me, not just because like it's a single wearable, but like in mass, if we can actually all start to look at environmental data, exercise data, sleep data, you can start to sort of triage and understand how much do these things really have an impact on individuals. And you're gonna have to follow them for a long time. Let's talk about two parts of that. One is privacy and the other is, is it a business? Now a lot, there's been a lot of healthcare startups lately. I said there's color, there's, all kind, there's just some that do your EKGs, all different kind of areas of nootropics. Theranos. Theranos, yes. We talked about that. <laughs> We're not going to talk about it anymore. Um, but that's still – actually, Theranos is in that direction, the mm-hmm. idea of making affordable testing and, and different things that seem too yeah. complicated. Let's talk first about the business of it because there hasn't been – I'm not going to say a Facebook of health, but where where is that? Where is that happening? Or do you imagine there has been? I think it's – that's what that, – like what I'm excited about with our round is like mm-hmm. it has taken us 11 years to get to this kind of critical mass. Right. And so there's not a Facebook of health. Like mm-hmm. we're, that's what we're – like we're getting to that point where I can say I have critical mass finally – 
I look at all of these great souls out here in Silicon Valley and around the world who are trying to make really innovative healthcare. changes in healthcare, mm -hmm. and it's hard because healthcare is spectacularly fragmented. Mm -hmm. You know, an oncology team at Stanford doesn't do the same things as an oncology team at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and they're protected under the practice of medicine, and they have different ways that they engage with their patients. Like everything is spectacularly fragmented. Mm -hmm. And so for us, one of the things that's really, I'm really proud of that we saw is like, I have millions of people now on a single platform that I know are all interested in their DNA and their health. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a huge potential for us to help, you know, again, engage all of our customers and potentially work with all of the innovative, you know, tech companies out here and give them a platform. Mm -hmm. But tech has not solved health. And in fact, right now, the Senate is now struggling with yet another version of repealing Obamacare. Right. Making this a business, how difficult is it? It's difficult. I think you have two paths in healthcare. Mm -hmm. Either you look at the reimbursement laws right. or the and, rules out there, mm -hmm, and you sure. say, this is how I make money. I get reimbursed. And you say, I know that I can get reimbursed in this kind of channel, therefore I'm going to offer these services. Mm -hmm. What's hard that we have done is the direct to consent, like people aren't used to this idea that they're going to pay for their own healthcare. Mm -hmm. There's not a consumer marketplace in healthcare outside of just the wellness, like yoga, vitamins, right, which is, which is a big, spending. it's a $300 billion yeah, market. It's, a big, it's a, definitely a big market. But actually making that change, so that's what we're trying to crack mm -hmm. specifically. Like it is really hard. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I empathize, like every year when I go to Health 2.0 or I was just at TechCrunch, like it's hard, you get a lot of these souls like really trying to make a difference and it's it's hard. Like that's why there's no one out there that's like really cracked it yet. Right, so if and, you were to do something aside from genetic testing or beyond genetic testing, you were to take that next step mm -hmm. in sort of uh, the consumerization of healthcare, what, what would that be? Well, I think you can look at our business and say, I don't have, I have one medical partnership and that's with the state of Nevada where I have, you know, with Renown, and, and that's, a, it's a phenomenal partnership. But I have partnerships with almost every retail. So, you know, Walgreens, CVS, um, Best Buy, we're in every place. And so, so when I think about the potential of healthcare and really becoming cheaper, what is that opportunity for the majority of us where we're not critically ill right now is that you you walk into a retail environment, you walk into Target. Target has a partnership with Kaiser. You know, they have minute clinics and CVS. Like, I think that there's a potential for actually having taking a lot of the existing healthcare stuff that we're doing outside of that system. And some of it, like when I go at Kaiser and if I have a mole that looks odd, I don't go to the doctor, I take a picture. Mm -hmm. I email, Kaiser produced statistics recently, like something like 50% of their visits now are online. Mm -hmm. So it's just like an email or a video chat. So there's a new way to approach healthcare. And so that's what I'm really into. Like when I think about Obamacare, like when I, when I used to invest and I would invest in India and Brazil, mm -hmm. there was this, like I could just walk in to an Apollo and I could pay $100 and I could get an MRI. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, and I did that because I couldn't, it was like a six week wait and $2,000 for me to get the MRI back at home. Right, I did that when I was sick in Hong Kong. Yeah, it's just, it's so much, it's so much more accessible. So like, that's what we're trying to pioneer. Mm -hmm. But the number one thing that you need is like, you need collective voice. And that's Which what we have. Because there's so much anger in the, throughout the populace about healthcare. Everyone's getting buffeted around this, these Senate bills and these House bills, none of which they seem to be able to solve for various reasons. I, it, and, it, and I almost step back from it. Like, there's a reason why we don't take insurance. Like, I'm not part of the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. The reason, like, people ask that question all the time of, yeah. like, why don't you take reimbursement, et cetera? Like, right. Because I don't want to be part of the existing system. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Like I'm, I want to, I really want to do everything I can also to support, like you pay, you pay for it yourself. Like you should step up for some parts of healthcare that are just routine. You pay for it mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Ma- but make it affordable. And we're really focused on making it affordable. And I look around the, the community, what other partners are out, are out there that are also really thinking about the consumer and affordable access to healthcare for consumers. One of the things I hear a lot from consumers who are interested in doing 23andMe or another DNA testing kit is they're just concerned about the implications. They either think that they're going to get some bad news. They say like, I don't want to learn how I'm going to die or what disease I'm going to die from. But another thing that you've mentioned before on your earlier podcast with Kara is it's, it's not just a window or insight into our genome, but it's also it can also point to patterns around things like capabilities, things like mm-hmm. being good at sports or being good at certain subjects and that kind of thing. What are the implications for that when, I mean, the world just becomes this massive database of genes mm-hmm. and you start to be able to spot patterns like that? I mean, this is kind of a big topic in Silicon Valley right now because of, I won't say who, but someone's memo James that went Timor. viral about you know about uh, women's capabilities in an engineering space right like like talk about that once we're able to spot patterns of certain things and what the implications of that are i think all of it is gonna like one of the most important things to put out there will be everything's gonna be based on probabilities like i can look at you know my father's a particle physicist and so he's very good at math i am likely inherited some other math abilities doesn't mean i'm great like i look at myself and my two sisters one out of the three of us is really really good at math than the other two. So you, it's all going to be about probabilities. It's not that everyone, if you have something in your DNA that says like, okay, you are likely to be better, you might be better at math or you might be better at... I'm better at basketball than Kara. Okay. <laughs> everybody's wow. everybody's say, better at basketball That's a low bar, girl. Yes, low bar. <laughs> um, but so if you're likely better at basketball than others, like it doesn't necessarily, like there's the environmental component that's still so critical to factor in here. And so I think it's really interesting to see what are you potentially better at in some area? Like, are you more likely, like we have the one test, are you more likely to be a sprinter or a long yeah. endurance? Yeah, my kids test? were talking about that the other day. Which is it's fascinating to see, but it doesn't still preclude you. Like you could, you could still be one or the other with the right environmental influences. And so all these things are gonna say, you have like an additional edge on one side here but it doesn't mean that your environment can overcome it. it. Right. That's and so I think for us, part of like the, what we're trying to understand with all of this is like how much of an influence do, do genetics have in each area? And we don't know. In some areas, it's definitely going to have more of an influence than other, like brown eyes. Like you have, you know, you have certain genes, you are very likely to have brown eyes, not 100%, but much more likely. That's where environment's not going to have as much of an influence. But like that's, what this is what we're really trying to understand. And without a doubt, there'll be all kinds of questions in the future. So finally, before we get to questions, we have so many. Privacy. They wanted to talk about doing this interview with you. People's genetic data goes in some kind of database. What happens when your company sells, goes public? Is hacked, is subpoenaed. This is something it, I've wondered about. I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt, but it's something I've wondered about a lot because I use a lot of these consumer health apps. And I've seen, especially the fitness tracking and food tracking ones over the past few years, has been this consolidation where a lot of bigger brands are buying up smaller consumer apps where, like, I've been entering in my activity data and my food data and everything for years. And all of a sudden, this big brand, like, owns that. Yeah. Right. And, and everyone says it's anonymized aggregated data, but there are ways that data scientists have been able to back into these data sets. Right. So, what what happens in the event of a, of a 23andMe ever getting acquired by a larger entity? A few things, like for the like we've we've always run the company that privacy and your ownership and control of your genome is the most important 
It's the, it's, the, it's, it's the foundation of this company. So even, it's one of the things I think about, like in a lot of research studies, if you were gonna participate in a research study at, let's say UCSF, once you participate, you can't necessarily pull your data out. And so we, we give people control all the time. At any point in time, you call 23andMe or you email in and say, I wanna delete my data, we'll delete all your data. We can't undo a research project or something we've done, but you can delete your data at any time. And so the, the control is with you. And you can share your, gen your genome if you want. You can not share your genome if you want. So we also have set, set up the database in such a way that your genetic information is totally separate from any of your identifiable, your personal information. So if there was a merger, if there was something that came out there, one of the key elements for us is that consumers always have that ability to just delete their data. And what about hacking or subpoenas? So subpoenas, we've never, you know, we have we have resisted every request that has come, and we've never been, we've never handed over data. I mean, it's what we've said. We've like we've done everything we can. We have never, knock on wood, again, never been hacked for it. Like without a doubt, there will be interest in it. It's it's at the same time, I do push on it sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like your bank account is inherently interesting, or mm -hmm. your passwords are inherently interesting. If I come and I get your DNA, I'm like, oh, you know, Kara's not great at basketball, and she's got brown eyes, and <laughs> <laughs> and she's European, like. So, so I mean, there's there's the interest yeah. element, and what I have seen is that privacy breaches happen mm -hmm. more within a family, mm -hmm. where people will say like, "Oh, no, I want to see is like my sibling related to my other sibling, yeah. or is like dad." Like, there's more privacy breaches in that capacity, or someone doesn't want to know, you know, are they a carrier for Alzheimer's? Like, does dad mm -hmm. is he a is he a risk? Is he not a risk? Like, there's those issues within a family, mm -hmm. um, but but the real issue, like you us being hacked. Again, we do everything we can right. and we think about that. The incentives are, are less. I feel everybody wants to understand my genetic makeup. I do. We just want to understand you. Quite something. <laughs> in any case, in a minute, we're going to take some questions. I'm a very simple gal. Uh -huh. Man, just so you know. In just a minute, we're going to take, just feed me and just put me in front of the television. Give me pretzels. Yeah, give me pretzels. In a minute, we're going to take some questions about 23andMe from our readers and, and beyond 23andMe from our readers and listeners. And Anne is going to answer all of them accurately. But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from one of our sponsors. Ka-ching. Thank you, Lauren. Yes. It, it turns out my parents say it exactly that way, too. <laughs> <laughs> to build the kinds of things developers want to build today, they need better tools. That's why Amazon Web Services built Amazon Aurora. It's a relational database engine that's compatible with MySQL and PostgreSQL, and it provides up to five times the performance of the standard MySQL on the same hardware at a tenth of the cost. Amazon Aurora from AWS can scale up to millions of transactions per minute. It automatically grows your storage to 64 terabytes. That's a lot of terabytes. And it replicates data to three different availability zones. You don't have to manage a thing. There are no upfront charges, no commitments. You only pay for what you use. Check it out at aurora.aws. We're back with Ann Wojcicki from 23andMe talking about personal genomics. And now we're going to take some questions. We have a lot of questions. So we're going to, we're going to sort of break them up into general in some areas. And so we've got so many. So keep them tight and fresh and accurate. That's what I would like from you. Go ahead, Lauren. Ask All the first right. Question. The first question is from David Immel, who asks, how has the accuracy increased since the company launched? Good I'm question. looking to get it done for my dad for Christmas. Oh. Great question. Um, accuracy on health is, you know, the, the test, the, the technology that we use is incredibly accurate. It has a 99.99% reproducibility. It's a phenomenal technology. So if I tell you, for instance, um, you're a carrier for cystic fibrosis, 
if you test yourself over and over again, we're always going to come back and tell you that you're a carrier for cystic fibrosis. There are some aspects of health where we're still evolving, where I might say, hey, it looks like you potentially are higher risk for, you know, back in the old days, we'd say, let's say you're higher risk for type 2 diabetes. But as the science evolves, that risk number potentially would start to change as we get better and better data, sure. like all aspects of healthcare. Then on the ancestry side, I always I draw the analogy to sort of Google Maps in the early days when it was fuzzier. And over time, you know, so with the satellite images, it gets better and better. And as we get data in populations from around the world, we'll be able to tell you more and more specifics about exactly where you're from in the world. Right. So right now we have more generalizations in certain parts of the world that are not as well studied, like Asia and Africa. Could you give just a very quick and very short time what people get when they do this? Because not everybody knows. I know you've sure. done these lovely ads that yeah. you've done. They're very touchy-feely and lovely. But explain what people do. They don't show any spitting in that. But like, <laughs> So you go online, 23andMe.com. You spin in a little tube. You get a kit. You get a kit. We send it to you in the mail. You open the kit. You spit in the tube. You um, put the little tube back in the little box. You mail it back to our lab. It's at LabCorp. Um, LabCorp processes it in anywhere from you know, three weeks to six weeks later, you get an email back from us that says, welcome to you. And there are really three main sections of the site. One is the health, and that is all these different health reports, and it could be reports like cystic fibrosis, it could be reports like factor five, which you mm -hmm. got, yes. which puts you at higher risk for a blood clot. Mm -hmm. um, you have wellness reports, so things like um, saturated fat, um, your genetic weight, which is, you know, are you more likely to be, be you know, gain weight or lose weight or be underweight? Um, and then we have the whole ancestry section, which tells you about which parts of the world You're from. you are from. It also compares you to all of the other 2 million plus customers in the and they that can we tell have. you have people who are, might be related to you. We I tell you people who are related yeah. to you. Hmm. Yeah. Factual. Yeah. Even um, if those people have not submitted their DNA. No, they, it's all people within the database. Okay. So mm -hmm. people who have submitted. So we tell you who of our other of customers. I get one of those a day. Sixteen people are related to. I well, we might be related. Wouldn't that be probably? Great? We okay. probably are. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> then there's the research I'm coming section. over for Christmas. <laughs> this is how she works her magic on reporters. <laughs> you know, we might be related. <laughs> I'm going to call grandma. Grandma, um, exactly. And then there's the research section. Yeah, which has where, all. Which is super. People love because my son like, reads all of them. Well, it's so interesting because like part of the purpose is like we don't. We are like you as a human being is a mystery still. Mm -hmm. And so your genome, in my mind, is the most spectacular human discovery of our lifetime. And we it's like a secret code in each person, and we don't know what that code means, and we're trying to figure that out. And so each time, like as more and more people add data, like we can start to figure this out. And so the research section is super interesting and engaging because there's all kinds of things, like the sunlight. You didn't know that it was necessarily genetic. You, some people look at the sunlight and they immediately sneeze. Right. And so that's like the kind of thing that it's like, it's not necessarily medically relevant, but it's right. just really you had a fun. lot of fun. Thing. Yeah, the it's pee. a lot of fun. Yeah, that, those the, weird pee. Asparagus and pee. Yeah. Not you everyone smells it. I still have that T-shirt. I can't wear it anywhere I go. <laughs> because you're so popular with it. <laughs> yes. That, that and my Uber T-shirt are now in the closet <laughs> oh, in my home. And they low. will stay there. I know. But that's where they are. <laughs> They're together. Okay. Abigail Jaffe. I think my Theranos is one there, too. Abigail Jaffe. My first DNA profile said I was 97.8% Jewish. When I connected with my mom's kid, it changed to 98.1. Okay. You're 
That's very Jewish still. So why is that? Why is the different percentages? So we are constantly looking, um, reworking algorithms and updating it. So mm -hmm. I don't know the specifics on that type of account, but that seems like depending on what time period it was, it was probably a new, you know, uh, a new push of the algorithms that came out, and sort of that's probably within the statistical error. Okay. Okay. Uh, this is from Friendorado at Mr. Goodwords on Twitter. I would be very interested to know what security and privacy measures are in place to protect my personal genetic data from loss or theft. I want to know the technical measures that are in place, for example, encryption monitoring, pen testing, etc. So I would, I can answer some of them. I know that we are, um, you know, the team is, is, obsessed with the privacy element that we have every, like we do everything that we can on it the database structure like i mentioned is set up specifically so we're separating out the genetic information from the from the personally identifiable information so that people cannot connect those two together we do encrypt everything um, in terms of the other technical ones, I wouldn't be able to answer them right now I'd defer it to my team um, but I know that that is like encryption and database structure are so the two things that I hear about and bubble up from my team all the time. Interesting. Are right. they looking into using blockchain? We have only um, recent, like I've talked about, no. Okay. As far as I'm as far as I've heard about, I do not. But again, my tech team, if they're free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I have not heard of anything that you're doing yet, yeah. as yet. All right. What protection? This is from Dennis McKenna in email. What protection does 23andMe offer so that my DNA results, particularly medically related ones, never fall in the hands of malevolent actors? Including insurance companies. I think he means especially insurance yeah. companies. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, so when you spit, mm -hmm. we don't have, so there's a few things. Like when you spit, you control your DNA. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's yours. If you want to share it with me, you want to share it with anyone else, you have that freedom to share it. We do not share your indiv individual level data with anyone unless you explicitly consent. So it's entirely in your hands. The other thing that's important for us to, for people to know, like you might have ordered the kit but you've probably given ordered kits in the past and given them away. Mm -hmm. So we don't have a legal chain of custody either. So like I haven't seen like, oh, you're, it might be under your name, but I have, don't know that you actually spat. So from a legal perspective, like I don't necessarily, I don't track it as like, oh, you specifically, Kara Swisher, this is exactly yours. Right. I just know that the account is registered there. Right. So we do, again, that from, from a point, like we've set it up in such a way that the control is really within your hands that you can own who you want to share it with and so, who you so don't. So insurance companies couldn't get a hold of it. No, we do every like we don't we don't we don't work with insurance companies in any way. It's also like I know it gets in some of the questions like we specifically we don't work with insurance and we don't work with health plans or providers in part because I know that people are, are anxious about it. Sure. So does that mean that if people can get a test done but they aren't necessarily opting in, that if you have two million people in the database, that mm -hmm. means you could have potentially sold many more kits. They're just not in the database. Is that how that Correct. works? Correct. Yeah. So I haven't so we the sales number we have is always bigger than the number of people who've actually Completed. Completed and it's bad and, and those tests are back. Got it. Okay. This is an email from Daniel Gilks. Is there any way to have my DNA sequenced anonymously? That way I can be sure that if the 23andMe database is compromised, at least the identity thieves won't have my name, address, social security number, credit card info, and my genetic code. Well, a few things. So one, we don't ask for your social security number. Um, we don't keep credit card numbers on file. I think one of the best things people could, you could buy it on Amazon and we don't then have your shipping info information. Um, then Jeff Bezos has it. You're welcome, <laughs> Daniel. So it's, <laughs> it just, then you just, then it's just distributed. Yeah. That's our blockchain approach. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so it's. Um, All your DNA are belong to Jeff Bezos. 
And Whole Foods. So I, that, I'll I mean, call you. They say I've noticed that you need some apples like immediately. <laughs> That's what he's going to do. Well, that could be exciting. No, it's not. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Go ahead. Answer seriously. So I think that's where, um, I mean, it's, again, we do everything we can. People, again, we see people order multiple kits and send them, you know, distribute them to lots of friends, and then we don't know who whose kit is actually whose. Oh, that's interesting. All right, so. I'm going to buy Carol one. Mm, I already did. Oh, you already did Trey did it. I haven't done it. I'm going to do it six times. DNA is beautiful. Beautiful DNA. Okay, Oscar J. Gistr. I can't pronounce that. I'm not going to. Should activities like this be covered by acts like HIPAA? Do you sell th- data to third parties? We do partnerships with pharma companies and um, academic research groups to further and advance you know, basic research. And so we have done programs in the past where we have asked customers if they want to be reconsented to participate in a clinical trial where their whole genome is going to be sequenced or where their genetic information will go somewhere. And usually those are people who have a specific disease and they're usually very enthused. Um, But again, it's up to the individual. Like one of the things I feel really strongly about is that there's not enough choice in healthcare. And so if you want to get your information, you should get it. And if you don't want to get it, then don't get it. But we're all about enabling and giving access about the controls. So when you say you do partnerships, does that mean you're selling that data to these partners? It's not selling. So we're we're pretty clear. Like usually what will happen, like we had a partnership we announced on um, um, bipolar and and, um, depression. And those customers are actually consented specifically so that we will get a copy of the data and the partner will get a copy of the data and we will both do the analysis. So an example like that, we're both working on the, on the, on the data. And so there's other studies that we do, like there was a big study that just came out on preterm labor and we will participate in that and we'll give aggregate data to the study, so that's one where we're not monetizing it. We'll just give aggregate data, so there's no individual level data, but it's sort of aggregated statistics. But the when you, way you mo- make most of your money is through selling of these kits, right? Is that correct? We or do you? a few things. So one, we sell the kits, mm-hmm. um, but it, so I look at the missions. Like one is about empowering the consumers, and two is like dramatically accelerate the pace of research. So we do research programs. Like without a doubt, I find people who have like people who have Parkinson's disease, they want us to do programs all day long because they want to advance the disease. Mm-hmm. So I do a mix of academic partnerships and partnerships with Companies, pharma partners companies. to try and move it forward. Right. So mm-hmm. and that's part of for me the the key element here is that balance. At any point in time, my customer can either not answer a research question and then I can't do research on them or they can withdraw their consent or they can withdraw their data. So we've really tried to make it so that this is a tr- like we have a true partnership with our customer, and that like the balance is equal. We're not but just you saying can sell their data if they allow it, correct? Sure. So, so yeah, you I mean, might sell it to pharma. I think it's that we 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 repel from this word of like we sell the data because at no point in time like at we always want people to feel like they're in control. And and so on the consumer end, when you say it, it's with their consent and that they mm-hmm. opt in. How does that happen? Does it happen like in the tiny fine print when they first sign up? Or do they get like an email or a phone call from the company that says we're about to start this trial? Like how does that work? So we go to great lengths to make sure people always know that they're opted into research. So for instance, when you're answering questions, if I ask you, you know, okay, what color are your eyes? And it's a question, there'll be a banner at the top that says, just a reminder, you are opted into participating in research. So we, like, I look at things like the Henrietta Lack story, and I say, like, that to me, like, that was such a missed opportunity, and there was a quote in the movie where she says, 
I would have participated in research. I just wanted to know that I was doing it. Right. This was the woman whose and DNA was w- exactly so her DNA was sort of taken from her, and all kinds of things happened, and she didn't know. I think that people. What I have learned after eleven years is that people really want to participate in research. They just want to feel respected. They don't want to be a human subject. They want to be respected as an equal and as a partner in the process. And they want to know your data is being used for these different activities. So one of the things we did, we have over 90 publications, and we launched this pro- this service, or like it's part of a feature of our website, where you can see which publications your data has contributed to. So in when it's contributed, it's in aggregate. So it's like an, part of an aggregate mm-hmm. statistic of everybody. But people feel this sense of pride. Like I have 43 publications. In that, like people feel a sense of pride, like, oh, I've contributed to a lot of different papers. And more and more, what I see is not that people are afraid of it. We all want to move the needle. But they should be concerned about it. They should be concerned. You're correct that banking data is much more interesting to people who like to steal these things, but still, you don't want. And and that's the next question, I think. Um, Why don't you ask that one? Sure. This one is from Chase Roberts. How do you think about the risk of providing info that insurance companies could potentially use to raise our premiums? This is another thing, and especially now with um, some of the questions around pre-existing conditions, things like that. I mean, I just think in general, people say, well, the more information that's out there, how concerned should I be? I point to it again, the reason why then it's self-pay and you own the information. I think that it's like so much of what we do is about lifestyle. So you find out you're at risk for different conditions. Then it's about your lifestyle and empowering you to make those changes. But again, I point more and more. When you pay for something yourself, you own it. If your insurance company pays for it, then they own it. So it's more and more, I think that there's a huge opportunity for individuals to learn about themselves and then be proactive and know specifically how to be proactive. And I think it should be in your control and not in the control of the insurance companies. You pay for it, you bought it, okay, kind of thing. All right, so this is about race. Mm-hmm. This is from Die Laughing. Ask her if she thinks she's encouraging racism. We should give some context here. In 2015, a developer was able to connect to 23andMe's API, mining the raw DNA of users who opted in. They made a proof-of-concept program that could say, for example, if your DNA isn't European enough, you can't do certain things. And more recently, BuzzFeed News has reported that white supremacists are using 23andMe and other DNA testing services to prove their own whiteness. It's actually, I think, one of the things I didn't anticipate about 23andMe is how much learning your genetic information changes your sense of identity. Mm-hmm. And I would say it was one of those things, like, I just assumed, like, oh, it'll be so interesting. You'll see how you're connected and whatnot. Um, it really changes how people view themselves and how they're connected to the world. And there's a few small examples where people have looked at this and they say like, oh, wow, look at me, I'm so white. Um, More often than not, you get these stories of people who were sort of white supremacists who get their DNA and it comes back that they're not as white as they thought Mm -hmm. and that it changes their mind. And there's one of the articles, which is actually one of my favorite articles, and it says specifically, like, you know, watch out because you're going to learn from 23andMe that you're not as white as you thought you Some of your were. ads highlighted, highlight some of the, those that you didn't well, that, know. It, but it's true. Like most of us out there are not like just French we think we or are. Scottish yeah. or Jewish. Like it, it's this diversity. And mm-hmm. that's – and what's what I love is like seeing that map of like you're connected to people all over the world. And you have relatives and family. And so there's always those few cases where people want to. But overwhelmingly what I have seen, and there's a couple great stories about it, where people look at this and they kind of are saying in some, like, I I, I used to be a bigot and now I'm not. 
And, and I think that's what I, I see this potential for us to actually be able to relate to each other better and actually see more of that commonality because of the DNA. A different angle on the racism question is something that anthropologist Jonathan Marks has argued. He says DNA ancestry tests reinforce, quote, scientific racism by highlighting and misrepresenting patterns of difference in the human species. So is it encouraging people to think about race in an unhelpful way? And we have a related question from another listener, at Larry Lal. I'd like to know what percentage of their 2 million customers are underrepresented populations, specifically African Americans, and what, if anything, they are doing to increase it. Population genetics is still, like, it's one of my favorite areas. It's always been underfunded. And this is where we will help define and craft. Like, it's not going to be... Um, it's a spectacularly interesting, like I can look at something like my Ashkenazi Jewish background and I can so spectacularly predict my Ashkenazi Jewish background. And I think understanding, um, you know, that there's certain characteristics like the BRCA mutation, which tends to be more frequent in that population and, and understanding then the why. And so I think that's where there's a huge amount of work for us to do in this. There's no things that we see, um, you know, there's all kinds of worries, like, are you going to look at the intelligence? And when you don't see any of those things. So right. I think that's where, like, part of that's that's where I think, if anything, we'll be able to debunk a lot of these myths out there rather than right. support. Right. But you, so you don't think there's a chance, because you spoke earlier about probabilities. You don't think there's a chance that that could reinforce stereotypes? Like, what kind of stereotype would you be? Uh, well, so one of the examples that you've mentioned yourself earlier is like looking at whether people are good at math or sports, mm -hmm. right? Like, so when you look at probabilities, right, and then you start to sort of cluster the data and, and people then have data, mm -hmm. you know, the, do you think there could be any chance of it reinforcing I think you're gonna start positive to or negative stereotypes? I think with, I think without, one, this is like, these are the research questions that are out there. And I think without a doubt, I think you're going to start to see that a lot of these things have very low, like math ability, like very low effect size, and it's going to be distributed. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that it will be, it's, it's hard to imagine that mathematical ability at any point in time was like part of of a survival metric for cavemen. So, so what about the, the underrepresented populations? That's something that we think a lot about and I think that's where like as we think about all of these issues like really understanding how people have evolved over time is going to be What really is the breakdown? Do you have a whole lot so, of white yeah, people so in there? So yeah, so we do. Um, it's roughly 75% European, but that said, He's taking the test yeah, but that said, if it's 75% European, that means I have half a million people who are non-Europeans who've done it, which is probably one of the biggest genetic data sets out there of mm -hmm. non-Europeans. So even though it's a small percentage, it's big relative to everything that's out there in the world. So one of the things we specifically are doing, like we just got an NIH grant on doing whole genome sequencing on African Americans. So we're specifically trying to do more in you know, underrepresented populations. And the thing I, I like to always highlight to people, African DNA is underrepresented in part because it's the most complicated. Like Europeans are just a subset of this, of the African content, so it's simpler. And Africa is just like full of like spectacular, incredible diversity. And so it's it's complicated. And that's where we are doing, like we right, have this. Specific. I've noticed, as it turned out, we had a lot of African DNA in our family, which we weren't aware of. And it was, and now it's gotten more specific of yeah. where. It well, that's what before. we're trying to do. Yeah, it more. was. It was in country. It was. It was getting sort of country specific. We want to do so much more of that. Then like, you can figure out how it happened, like how that. Yeah. 
which is and I think like there's all, all throughout Asia and India like there's there's so many interesting opportunities out there for like expanding beyond your like Europeans it just happens to be like that is where there's been a big population buying especially on and the, that's who's buying these kits too uh, the last question is from Hussein Salama, who asks, as a person of Arab and Middle Eastern descent, I'm worried results will only say MENA region for heritage. Can that change in the future? Another question similar to Larry's talking about, uh, I guess, you know, a somewhat limited database from a certain region or area. Without a doubt, that's where mm -hmm. there's a research component for us of getting access to more reference samples essentially like the more we can find um, people in different areas and actually know like they have four grandparents there that they've been part of this you know, that they really are from that area, um, we'll be able to expand our reference data set. So without a doubt, people's, the, the, the data will get better and better over time. And in certain areas, like Europe is by far the best, I would say, you know, even sort of England, like they've, they've really, they've done an incredible number of genetic subpopulation studies. So over time, it's gonna keep getting better Where is and better. most of your, the US, most of the tests? It's remarkably spread throughout. I mean, I think that's one of the things I'm also proud of is like we have a pretty diverse group in in terms of economics and and in the regional. United States. Mm -hmm. But anywhere. I mean, it's world. concentrated as you would imagine Concent in coast. Yeah. California, New York are big. Right. Hmm. Okay. Next ones are about future efforts. Okay. All right. These are the last. There's six or seven here. Four or six. All right. Future efforts. Cass Miller. At Next Gen Gamer, is it possible at 23andMe to add diabetes genetic health risk test in the future? Mm. We really, like, I love, because we used to have a diabetes report. Yes, you did. Um, I love that report. Um, so, yeah, no, we definitely, like, diabetes is really interesting. And type 1 and type 2. I mean, I think it would be the number of people I know who are type 1 diabetics, and, you know, clearly there's an environmental, clearly there's a genetic risk factor in my mind that there's mm -hmm. something out there. And then um, and understanding it and, and being able to help people so understand the environment. when? These are all, I would love to know when too. FDA, but, yeah. but I mean, I, like I said, we've made progress, so. Mm -hmm. All right. What's the one you're making, you think it's gonna be sooner than later that was pulled off the list that I brought it back on? Uh, we haven't said, but I think that you can make guesses based on severity of disease. Okay, all right, next. Next question is an email from Dr. Paula Amato. She's an associate professor at Oregon Health and Science University. Is 23andMe interested in supporting research on human embryo CRISPR gene editing to prevent the transmission of serious genetic diseases to future generations? And she did that a note that if you are, you should email her. But very quickly ex explain CRISPR for people who don't know what that is, uh, CRISPR gene editing, and is that something that you're interested in supporting research on? I, CRISPR is an amazing technology. It's, a, it's like if you remember the word processing apps in the day before there was cut and paste. Um, so a cut and paste is essential to everybody who uses a computer, and that's yep. essentially what CRISPR does. It allows you to cut out part of a genome and to paste something new in, and it's, it's amazing. I look at the job of 23andMe as looking at your three billion base pairs, which is a code, and we don't know what that code means. My job is to figure out and to translate that code. When, when we have translated that, people with CRISPR, they can without a doubt use it. But my job, like what I'm really interested in is that translation and figuring out what your three billion base pairs mean. And at some point, like we, I know the CRISPR teams and, and I'm supportive and it's super exciting. It's not what we're doing right now. All right. Okay. All right, at Keeney76, this is Keeney. Since launch, AI has had a tangential leap. How has it affected the findings and what will it look like a decade later? I think AI is really interesting when you have huge data sets. And I think mm -hmm. that that's where we're just reaching that point with you know two million people and over half a billion data points. Like we're just reaching those 
numbers where I have enough data to start to really apply machine learning and, um, and AI. So my dream is at some point in time, you walk into your doctor's office and they say, hey, Kara, based on your behaviors, based on all these things you've done, you're three years away from being diabetic. So either you make these types of changes or you're going to become diabetic. So some way, like risk prediction for me is just really interesting and, and being able to leverage all the data that we ha currently have and say, can we actually use and AI? And then there'll be a robot that takes away the donuts, right? <laughs> well, that's where I feel like that's, that's the view. It depends. Oh it depends on what country you live in. But it right now here, well, then Amazon will you... start sending you apples. No, or else well, yes, or Amazon will start sending you apples or they, avocados, or, the, or your Amazon Alexa says, put that down. They see you, put that down, put that down. Or it won't let you open the refrigerator if it's just your children. That's right. I'm just not my children. <laughs> Next one's from Lydia Sienkowska at Lydia's World on Twitter. What's the most difficult obstacle you've had to personally overcome as a woman in tech oh. or life sciences? Yes, talk about the woman's issue, Anne. Oh. Um, are you more neurotic? Am I more <laughs> <laughs> You're a CEO. And how did you reach that position, given your neuroticism? I... I <laughs> Okay. I, I actually feel Are you like okay. Would you like to get off the fainting couch? <laughs> oh my God, you totally sound like no, your sister. I know. Right I think that there's You're genetically. I mean, I'm, to Susan would just. I I am. Um, I mean, in some way, like. <laughs> sorry, repeat the question. <laughs> sure. Uh, Are you neurotic <laughs> as a woman? And how did you become a CEO? No. What's the most difficult obstacle you've personally overcome as a woman um, in tech slash life sciences? I'm totally empathetic. Like, there's so many. I read these stories of women in these horrible situations, and I am completely empathetic. Like, I, I at the same time, like when, and in some ways, Wall Street maybe was just great training for me. Like when I watched that movie, Wolf of Wall Street, mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, like that's yeah, that's when seven that was like day. that yeah. was like that was just like what it was. Like mm -hmm. I, I just got so used to that. Like in some ways, like this egregious behavior, and I really I developed what I always had as my philosophy. Like there are men. There are women and there are assholes. Mm -hmm. And you just work with the men and the women. And you try to avoid the assholes as much as you can. And so one thing like for me, I've always never been I've never been afraid of quitting. So like when I worked, like I worked for some horrible, like really challenging people. And I just, you know, I had that luxury in life of being able to say, like, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna leave. So I think what I what I pride myself almost most on now is really trying to create a phenomenal environment in 23andMe. And you know, I'm lucky, like I haven't had, I mean, I don't look like, I, I feel like like my FDA challenges were bigger challenges. Mm -hmm. And what do you I, think of the overall issue though? I mean, obviously there's been like the scientific research about women and tech and stuff like that. It's a huge issue. What I'm, happens to it? I think, I think one of the things that I try to do is I see, and I see this even of myself when I was on Wall Street, like I didn't necessarily know how to advocate for myself in the sense of like, like, oh, you, like, oh, you're like, you're advocating too much and therefore you're bitchy. And, or you're like the stereotypes, mm -hmm. like I think Cheryl did a lot to bring that yeah. up of like the bossiness yeah. and such. Mm -hmm. Reason. So, Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, I'm at, like I said, I, I, I think the best thing that I can do because I can't change the entire valley, like the best thing I can do is lead by example. And I think more and more, like I talked to my sister about this a bunch, mm -hmm. like I think the thing, like I have that responsibility then of doing mentorship and outreach and having everyone in the company to be a good citizen. So like I need to make sure that like my like men and women are paid equally and that they have the equal opportunity. Like we, and we have, like we have really great numbers of who, of represent, of gender representation 
in the company and that balance. What is your number? Are, yeah, are they paid equally? We're, um, yeah, no, I mean, I look at those things. Like that to me is like really, and, and I think, again, like I, ha- I haven't, I mean, I have looked at it, but it's, yeah, I mean, I, I would like to th- say yes. So, I mean, I think that that's part of the unconscious bias. Like, is there something in there? We just hired a great new head of HR. So like, I think that's where focusing on this, but I've made conscious efforts of also when I see women in the office who are speaking and then somebody else speaks over them, like I'll pull them aside afterwards and be like, did you just know, like, don't ever let that happen again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, even when some people have done bonus review and then they say stuff and I'm like, let me just pose like, I'm going to take off my manager hat here and you need to advocate for yourself. So Mm -hmm. I think that's part, like there's a cultural element that I I do see. Yeah, you have to think. You think about it hard. I have sometimes. I have to say, do you realize I'm actually your boss? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I think. I'm not sure if it's clear to you yet. And just to be clear to the 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 readers too, or excuse me, readers and listeners who are listening to this, and sister happens to be Susan Wojcicki, who's the CEO of YouTube. If if you didn't uh, know that when you first started listening, and Susan, of course, um, wrote an excellent memo after the Google James Demore thing. Did she show that to you in advance? Did she? Did did she talk? Talk to you about she that was sort on, of thing? she was on vacation and we talk about it all the time like I just like I, I again I was so lucky because I was n- we were never raised in any way to think that there was something that we could not do yeah well and we so, need to have your parents raise everybody at I, this point. we do <laughs> and I think that's where like I remember the first time the first time I was in college and I met this guy and he was like oh no 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 like women can't do that and I remember staring at him and and I had almost like he was like an anthropological specimen to me I'm like Oh, I read about people like you. <laughs> yeah. You're like one of those people who thinks that like yeah. women can't do everything. I was like, that's so interesting. Yeah. Like, tell me more about your background. But your um, family does get a lot of attention because it's like all three incredibly accomplished. And your mother's accomplished. Your father's a physicist. It's a little bit of a we have another she, sister who's a doctor, doctor as well. She's, right? an she's a she's an epidemiologist. Yeah. So we were raised to be very confident, and I think that's one that like we were raised to be like again. We're very confident and I think we're like I love getting feedback I love getting input like I always am recognizing we're not doing it right so we're constantly trying to learn and for me as CEO like that's like the gender issue like I'm I, I'm at that point like I'm trying to understand like what else can we do a, I just posted a really interesting yeah. quote from Ellen Powes we're gonna, I'm gonna have her on the podcast next week is it possible I'm really too ambitious while being too quiet while being too aggressive while being unlikable I saw that yeah <laughs> that's a great quote yeah, I, and I think that's part of it. Like, I, I did grow up with, like, my mom where, like, half the world would hate her and half the world loved her. And, right. like, in some ways we – like, I think one of the things that helped out – like, we were just so used to controversy. Yeah. Yeah, the kids. wash definitely. The wash is definitely yeah. un- <laughs> uncontrollable. Yeah. And you said before that you don't read your own press. Like, that it, that doesn't no. feed into sort of your idea of self-worth. You're, you don't necessarily no. care if people don't like you. No. I read all your press. <laughs> I, just, I read all, I read all like, your press. Right, so I, press. Good job. Well, someone needs to. Um. I'm enjoying it. Big deal. I always notice when you're somewhere fantastic. I think I text you. That's from Instagram, girl. Yeah, okay. All right. That's true. Yeah, it is a real, it's going to be. But it is a real, like, I'm always open to it. Like, if there's, there's things we can do, on, there's totally a bad, and like, I read these stories, I'm like, oh, like, it's remarkable. Yeah. And I think, I do think, like, the more, like, I'm really, really lucky that I have my sister. Because like I have a support system, and mm-hmm. I think that the support system is almost one of the most critical elements yeah. out there to drive change. Yeah, and I think that's where I look at it, is rather than rehashing the past, like how do I set up that support system in the future so that I can help other female, like just or all genders. Like there's men who are who yeah, have issues. Like, like I want to support all of it. Yeah. How do you actually support that kind of a supportive mm-hmm. environment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for know. you, it's focusing on how you do that within your own company, how you're a leader within your own sort of. I think sphere, the best thing I can than, do is I can lead by example. Speaking out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I can lead by example. I'm happy to speak out too, mm -hmm. but like I lead by example. Like we're gonna put out our diversity numbers. Like I can lead by example and also with the company. Like how am I operating this company and what are the roles of all these women in the company and promoting and making sure that I'm doing it. And also the other thing is like admitting when we're wrong. Like if I looked at my 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 stats and I was like, oh wow, I haven't been paying these the like the the woman I'm paying the woman less. Like I need to own it. Like wow, I was really wrong. Yeah. Like so I think that's also part of the healing process like everyone recognizing and moving forward mm -hmm. and and just and being you, again I I say it all the time like lead by example and that's the best thing I can do is like set up 23 me especially as we grow and expand to have that kind of environment because then I set I teach people this is what you should actually expect and that's the thing that my parents did for me they taught me like this is what you should expect from people doesn't matter what they are they all treat you well and if they don't, you leave. Mm -hmm. And so like that's to me is like that, ha like I want people to have, like people in my company need to expect that. And if for some reason there's a department where that's not happening, like we will be changing that. Right. Mm -hmm. And also don't fuck with the Wojcicki's. <laughs> yeah, that's Kara's, that's Kara's example. They quiet, they quiet, they quiet, they're lethal. That's how I look. Your sister. Looks like a soccer mom. She could kill you at any point. And I understand your mother. You can see your mother coming a mile away, actually. You can see the wadge you can see coming at you. The wadge is less subtle. Less subtle. She's not a ninja, let's just say. You can see her coming from China. Yeah, exactly, so to speak. All right, last one. David Nunez, David at David from Oregon. When can a college student purchase an affordable version of 23andMe? How much does it cost right now? So it's 99 for Ancestry only and 199 for Health and Ancestry. So that's a little hmm. pricey. He put affordable in all caps. Mm -hmm. Affordable. <laughs> eh, affordable and adorable version. He's like, that's a lot of ramen and he beer. Put actually, you know what? I think he put adorable version and we corrected affordable oh, okay. oh yeah but i don't think he wants an adorable version i, I he wants an adorable version <laughs> like, i could make him an adorable <laughs> he sent it in a teddy bear <laughs> with puppies um we do everything we can i mean we really try to keep getting the price down mm -hmm. for this and we've done specials what, and sales what does, it take? what does it take to get the price down like companies paying it's for hard it. companies paying for it and subsidizing well companies paying for it, but i i also again it goes to that point about owning your data like mm -hmm. you should pay for it. Okay. So we should like part of it is like saving up. So I. Would what put is it, the big cost? Just the testing. The te the like, will right. that be coming down? Uh, it comes down, but because it's you know it's you just have Illumina and you just have the, the spit tube, the te the actual genetic test, the processing are all single supplier. So it's it's hard to negotiate when you can they do hair or something else that's cheaper. Um, a piece you, of skin. No, you don't get the same. So mm -hmm. we we work on that, and I'd say we compared to everything that's else that's out there in healthcare, we, we pride ourselves on being pretty affordable. That's it. I, I hear from college students a lot and we think about like, should we come up with some kind of college program where, you know, we also are really interested in sponsoring um, genetics clubs. So on college, actually getting people to understand all these questions that we just talked about from, you know, the implications in healthcare and the implications in understanding risk and how you can change your environment to ancestry and race, like having those clubs and having those conversations there. So we're starting those college club programs and then we can offer discounts to those students. Idea. So if he wants to email and be really engaged and set up a program at People his beg to come to college. code all the time on a college. Family. Do they? And I'm like, no. I, no. <laughs> but that's because you're mean. I know. <laughs> Now, what no. kind of environment are you running here? I want people who pay me the money. That's we did have a kid from college who came. After he won in? a he won a podcast competition, he won a podcast. and now he works mm. for Vox Media. He See? networked his way in. Is that Zach? Zach. Zach. Yeah, but he's good. He's a go getter. He's a go getter. 
He's a go-getter. Okay, so you, but these can be go-getters on college campuses. Okay, all right. Okay, we'll deal. set up a program. All right. Okay, and this has been. Yes. I, I'm going to ask you one final question. Okay. What's the most out? Is there someday when you're just going to walk into a scanner, it'll know all your genetics? What is the most promising technology of the future? One briefly, so we can. Most let you promising go. technology of the future um, that you saw and you went. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't seen. You know, I have to say the most exciting conferences I ever went to was the Radiological Society of North America. Oh, really? <laughs> it was actually, it was so X-ray. amazing. Carol wants no, to know if you could is. take her next year. I mean, in some ways, like the imaging, what or you was can, it Cleveland? What you can, uh, it was in that area. Okay. Um, <laughs> Cincinnati. But what, but what you can see in your body, I mean, yeah. that's to me the oh, beauty. Oh, 3D. It's yeah. 3D and you could fly through. I mean, we, you remember that movie yeah. where you were the little guy in the, and you could fly inner space oh my it god was, i just mentioned this the other day in a millennial in our office was like what's what inner space okay so I, was, I had to tell him steven spielberg directed it yeah, and it was like inner space so rsna cool. that conference was mm-hmm. like inner space and it was real and you could i mean the potential was so exciting of what you could visually inject see anyone into your veins to save your heart <laughs> stint did they do that there was a there was an earlier movie for you mm-hmm. much older people like myself where they injected something and then they what was it called do you remember? There was a movie where they injected it to... Was Fantastic Voyage. Fantastic oh. Voyage. And they went yeah. into them, and then they got in the stomach and got into all kinds of trouble from the acid, and then they and the platelets went after yeah. them. And like, <laughs> well, I, it was crazy. I think that, Everybody that will all be inside the person, and I thought they'd get bigger by accident, and then they explode the person. Anyway, <laughs> well, we're, Fantastic Voyage, we're, I recommend We're it. not hoping for that outcome. Okay. But I think that the imaging... That imaging. Com- imaging is going to be amazing. Beautiful. I mean, I think... It, and also because it's spectacularly visually... Yeah. Beautiful. What is so exciting that I don't know if people are fully aware of is how much cancer is really being almost like in some areas being cured. Like that would be the great. developments on cancer is, are spectacular. It's so exciting yeah. what's happening. And I think a large scale, like when I look at the potential of HIV, mm-hmm. you know, large yep. part, like largely cured part, they understood the genetics. Right. Same thing with cancer. Like there's a huge genetic component to cancer. And so that I just look at every other disease that's out there. Every disease at some point is going to have a genetic subtype. And you're going to be able to manage it because you really are going to understand exactly how it's working. There'll be targeted therapies for it. And then, and then we can end. My grandma used to call it the cancer. (laughs) (laughs) But then, but then we will never die. Then we'll be. Then we'll be like a thousand, and we'll still be here. I know. You're going to get plenty. (laughs) We'll still be podcasting. What will what will gender relations be like then if we're a thousand? Uh, I don't know, but we're definitely going to outlive men. So you know, (laughs) because we're neurotic. (laughs) All right, neurotic ladies. Yeah, that's true. All right, this has been a tremendously great episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask with Ann Wojcicki. Ann, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So fun. Thanks fun. so much for coming on. And if you all enjoyed this week's episode as much as we did, be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. But seriously, subscribe. If you do, you'll be the first to listen to new episodes every Friday or catch up on previous episodes where we answer all of the tech questions that our listeners have been too embarrassed to ask. And if you're not an Apple podcast, you can also subscribe on Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or just go to the website. Go to recode.net. It's so cute how they have a dot .net slash podcasts. Sexy. Put the sexy back dot dot net. net. And while you're there, you should check out our other podcasts like Recode Decode, Recode Replay, and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Yes, and you can listen to us all of Kara's genetic testing results on Recode.dna. <laughs> uh, the Verge also has a great podcast called The Vergecast, and that's hosted by Neilai Patel. I am made of adamantium, in case you're interested. I don't, what was, what oh was God. that you just you don't, said? Oh my God, I'm not even, Eric is just like convention. Adamantium. Right.
Wolverine. Oh my God! You're f- I'm moving. Is that Hugh Jackman? If I say Laura Croft and you don't understand, no, it. I know who okay, Laura Croft is. All right, don't forget to tweet your questions ahead of time to at Rico with the hashtag Too Embarrassed, or email them to Too Embarrassed at RicoNet and note that Lauren doesn't know anything about key movies. Of yes, you can send years. me all of your hate mail now. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Cadence 13, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson, who knows what adamantium is. We'll be back next week to answer more of the questions you've been too embarrassed to ask. So tune in next week where we're going to dissect Kara's DNA test live on air. Hi, this is Kara Swisher. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Our media industry listeners will already know this, but Recode is owned by Vox Media, and we wanted to include a special shout-out because we're so proud to be associated with them. Vox Media is a fast-growing modern media company known for its standout technology and high-fidelity advertising. Its platform is what supports our growth here at Recode, and it's what allows us to go deeper into the topics you, our listeners, care most about. For us, that's tech news, reviews, and analysis. But for listeners who haven't already, you should check out Vox Media's other editorial brands. There's Vox.com, which goes deeper into explaining the stories defining our world today. On SB Nation, they tell the story beyond the scoreboard. And there's many, many more, including Eater, Curb, Racked, and Polygon. What unites all of these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality because we believe in the power of depth and we believe in the best of our audiences. If you aren't going to go deep, where are you going? Vox Media.